Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Professor Eric Pinot to speak about wildfires in Canada, big oil and gas in North America, and perspectives on social ecology of capital. If you enjoy this content, please go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and donate to the show by clicking on the red button at the top right corner of the screen. Most importantly, please get on our mailing list. That way you're notified every time there's a new episode. And go to our YouTube channel, The Analysis-News. Like the channel, subscribe, and hit the bell. See you in a bit with Eric Pinot for a very interesting discussion on social capital. Joining me now is Professor Eric Pinot. He's a professor of political economy at the Environmental Sciences Institute at the University of Quebec in Montreal. He's also a contributor at the Corporate Mapping Project and has recently published a book called A Social Ecology of Capital. Thank you so much for joining me, Professor Pinot. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you because I'd like to speak to you about your book today as well as what's going on in Canada and the United States. There have been horrible forest fires, horrible wildfires, which have destroyed over you know, 5 million hectares of land across Canada. And I mean, at, at the moment, the air quality has, has been so terrible, and I'm sure you've been affected by it where you are in Quebec. But I was wondering if you could maybe situate these forest fires within the context of a concept you speak ab- about called extreme oil, because we can you know, view these forest fires as an isolated catastrophe, but I think your work really is able to show how they're they're tied to other processes. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that these forest fires are created by climate change. I think that the boreal forest does have a a, a fire cycle. Um, Usually it's around 100 years. Every century, the forest patches, a patch of forest will burn. Um, but but these forests, these fires are usually not as deadly, not as widespread, and 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 um, I think this is a, a cycle that is that is anthropic in nature. So so once we've connected that dot, we say the forest fires are connected to climate change and to the way that we're transforming the climate. Then we have to say, well, you know, what is climate change caused by? And I think that is kind of a question that we we now know the answers. It's it's it's, it's caused by. An economy and a mode of living that is tied to fossil fuels, and and there's other factors that are that that, that contribute. You know, land use change and 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 um, the pervasive use of, of cement and concrete in our in our in our in our urban metabolisms. But maybe we can come back to that later. But I think you know the, the prime suspect here, the prime driver, is hydrocarbons, be it coal, gas, or oil. Um, and extreme oil is a is a word is an expression that was invented by where extreme gas, extreme oil was invented by movements in the U.S. and in Canada that were on the ground challenging fracking, pipelines, mountaintop removal in in the case of coal, um, you know, saying that this new wave of extractive activity in North America um, um, was was in a dual context. On the one hand, it was was, um, impacting... Um, marginalized communities mostly and and it was it was um, impacting um, landscapes and ecosystems that hadn't been impacted yet and and it kind of felt like all of a sudden there was this huge grab of, of resources and and spewing out of, of, of activity that was that was transforming um, the land and and destroying ecosystems so that was one part of the uh, and then uh, and it was extreme in that sense that it was it was not something that we had experienced in the past were and then the second aspect was the um the fact that you're you're burning um we're extracting hydrocarbons that you can't burn i mean that's basically why it's extreme um we know this i mean this the science is very clear there's no way around the science that says this is just unburnable carbon so it's way past the budget that we can that we can you know we knew we know that we have to burn some carbon to do this transition away from carbon uh, but the amount that's being extracted, the level of extraction, and also the reserves that are being um, discovered, you know, we know they're there, but I mean, the, the reserves that are being capitalized, let's use more more specific vocabulary, um, by these practices, um, so these reserves that are being capitalized are unextractable. And it's in that context that, that I think we can 
and then there's maybe other factors that that extreme oil is also about oil that um that you have to burn a lot of oil to get the oil a lot more than in the past um when we started using oil we would have to burn about one barrel to extract about 200 you know you just basically put a pipe in the in, in, in the in, in the soil and it would just start to gush out um today you know at, at the best we're at like 50 to 40 to 1 and in the worst case scenarios um when we're fracking and when we're um when we're transforming sand into oil which is what we do now at tar sands then you're you know it's horrible you're like at five to one six to one or sometimes ten to one so you have to burn like one barrel to get ten and this is so you're burning a lot of oil to get oil you're burning a lot of gas to get gas um and sometimes you're burning gas to get oil if you're fracking um when you frack uh for oil let's say in, in north dakota um then you put your pipe in you frack and then well you're not sure the mix you're going to get you're going to get some oil you're going to get some gas you're going to get some stuff in between so what do you do you just want the oil you don't want the gas so you flare it um, and, and the opposite happens in BC. You're fracking for gas, but then you get these liquids that are coming out. What do you do? You, you, is there a pipe where you could, you know, or a truck that can haul it away and there's somebody that wants to buy it or just, just end up flaring it because, you know, no, no, no economic use for it. So these new hydrocarbons are much more in carbon um, intensive and that's why they're extreme. So it's not only that we can't burn the carbon, um, it's only that this carbon is, is the way we extract it is, is destroying ecosystems and, and impacting communities in, in novel ways. But it's also that it's so much more costly for the environment and for the climate to, to, to extract this carbon. So that's why it's extreme. And looking at these um, industries, so big oil and big gas, or even looking at the tar sands in Canada, for example, would you say that there's uh, that... Um, Private investors are still heavily investing actively in these sectors. Is this more, you know, consolidated rather than a booming sector? Well, for Canada, it depends what we're looking at. If we're looking at the oil sector, it's consolidated. Um, that, that our research at Corporate Napping that I that I did back with um, Ian Hussey and with others um, about five years ago, six years ago, we really saw a, a sector that was consolidated after the the bust in two fourteen when oil prices started to dip. Um, so it's a sector, and and when you consolidate, well, then you know usually what happens is governments step in and help out, and 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 that'll bring us to, to discuss other things. Um, and we see this cons consolidation also on the east coast. Uh, if we look at you know Newfoundland, um, which which had jumped into this oil boom through through offshore oil projects, which really transformed the Newfoundland's economy um, after two eight two nine. Like the numbers are, are astounding. You have like more than 50% of the private sector investment in Newfoundland, which is just one industry, oil. It's like massive, um, massive dependence on one sector. And um, and it also, in timing, it's really weird because, well, not weird, but it's very um, dramatic because um, the, the cod fishery collapses and then at the same time, the oil boom happens. So, so the economy just basically transitions to fossil dependence. Well, now today you see, you know, Econor, this major in extractor from, from Norway, that suspended its project to extract offshore oil um, um, from Newf uh, off the coast of Newfoundland, basically citing um, extraction costs. The oil is just too expensive, and prices are not there. Um, so, so it's a sector that's consolidating more than it's um, than it's uh, booming. Gas is another story. Um, gas is prices are low. Prices are desperately low, but still it's booming. Um, fracking is just kind of this self perpetuating industry where where muddy is being gushed into the to the sector and 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 we're just you know you, you frack for four or five years a whale then it dries out and you move 200 yards 300 yards further you just go at it again and they and again and again so that sector is booming and and it's and and canada's problem with gas is that we have um the scale of extraction is too high for what we can consume domestically so we're we're constrained to export. Right. Um, if we would bring down the volume of extraction to what we actually consume, it wouldn't be financially viable. The industry would just not be, it just cost too much. You know, there's a question of, of, of scale. You know, as you scale up production, unit costs go down. It's kind of this economic thing. Um, so, so 
we're, we've got an exportation constraint or imperative in Canada. We have to export the gas. Um, exporting it to the U.S. via pipes is is what we did traditionally, but um, but the U.S. is is like gas is pissing out of you know all all the pipes everywhere. They've got too much gas too because they're fracking also. <laughs> so the only way, the only economically or capitalistically viable way out of this conundrum is to export it as LNG somewhere, and and that's why we've got this pressure to accept all these LNG projects. It's because it's the only way that we can that this industry can survive. So that industry is growing. It's not consolidated. And is that why the Canadian government has essentially said that they would guarantee uh, loans for the transnational pipeline projects, something like $3 billion Canadian yeah, dollars? Yeah, that's, that's that. Canada's got this export um, constraint problem. <laughs> we have to export it. Uh, and actually, I think we have to widen our lens a bit. I would say North America has um, surplus hydrocarbons, which got too much of it, so we have to export it. And then that's when um, the Canadian government comes in as a, as, as a supporter, of as an important economic supporter of the hydrocarbon industry. So in the case of oil, what the government does is it has supported the consolidation process by buying up a pipeline that the private sector couldn't economically build. It just wasn't viable to build it anymore. So the government stepped in, bought it, and and is it is spending, you know, billions and billions. Um, costs are always you know going up, trying to finish this this pipeline. And the purpose of this pipeline is to bring shipping costs down for our oil that is coming out of Alberta. So that's going to help the consolidation process by bringing export costs down. So that's that's on that on that front. On on the gas front, it's a different story since the the. Um, industry is expanding. We know that um, um, the economics of, of extraction is that often the extraction of a resource is limited by the capacity to export it, put it on world markets. Um, you might be sitting on billions, but if you can't send it anywhere, then it's just you know not worth anything. So we have to build up our, our export capacity and gas, the only way to export it on world markets is as LNG because uh, you know you can't we don't have pipes that are going from Vancouver to China uh, so you have to put it on a boat and then send it out on world markets and hope somebody buys it up um, and that um, that is is one of the ways that the Canadian government is supporting the expansion of the industry the other way it's supporting it which is um, much more um, twisted I would say is through hydrogen. The government is a big, big fan of, of this hydrogen economy, which is a really weird concept because hydrogen is not a source of energy. Hydrogen is just like a battery. And it's a really inefficient battery. You know, I mean, at best, depending on what you're converting into hydrogen, you, the losses go from 30 to 90% of the energy that is lost. But anyways, so hydrogen, you can make it out of renewable energy. That's one way to do it. But the easiest way to make hydrogen is you take natural gas, and I'll, I'll do some chemistry for a second here, CH4, right? So an atom um, of carbon with four atoms of hydrogen. So if you split that up somehow, I mean, it's, you get big time hydrogen, right? You get the H2 fat easily. So the easiest way to do it is to transform natural gas, methane, into hydrogen. And that's one of the ways. So this hydrogen economy hype that the Canadian government is pushing as some kind of renewable energy um, um, solution is actually a way to support the gas industry also. So yeah, it's essentially greenwashing hydrogen. Yeah, isn't it? it's greenwashing exactly. Yeah, hydrogen is yeah, it's a big yeah yeah. But back to greenwashing in general. I mean, the Canadian government obviously has all the scientific reports in front of them. They've seen how you know global warming is not going away. How these increases in in the global temperature will eventually lead to tipping points, which will then you know, ensure that global warming will not be reversible in any way, shape or form. So, I mean, maybe this is a naive question, but why is it that the Canadian government is really supporting these projects and characterizing the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline as part of its long-term economic strategy when it knows that, you know, in a few years, in a few decades, this is really not going to be sustainable and the profits they get from from these projects will be meaningless if people can't even live in the country anymore yeah 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 well you know a state is a complicated thing i mean it's it's not it's not a unified 
entity, we often say that the state is a, is a, is a, is a space of conflict. Um, and I think that uh, the Canadian government is, 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 is an example of that. Um, on the one hand, they do have um, climate policies in place, and they do seem to want to be going towards their Paris Agreement um, um, engagements. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the, the oil sector has prominent support inside the Canadian government, um, and the oil sector is is uh, and, and oil and gas. I'd say more oil and gas, not coal. Coal is very marginal. Oil and gas is 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 a a structuring element of the Canadian capitalist economy. Um, it it's not only about Calgary and and Edmonton. Um, it's also about Toronto and Bay Street. You know, the Canadian banks are really tied in to the um, to the oil and, and gas sector. Um, it's it's the our, our financial markets are tied to the sector, um, and and so it's really it's 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 a it's a cluster of interests that is very important. And I think that we haven't been able to marginalize this cluster of interests as as other um, well, you know. In, Let's zero into, into Quebec. In Quebec, because of the absence of a structuring hydrocarbon sector, we've been able to marginalize and basically pass a law saying there will be no extraction of hydrocarbons on, on Quebec's territory. That's the, the Bogle law that was passed uh, last year. Um, that is not something that could be possible in Canada, given the economic structure and given the class interests um, um, that, are, that, are, that are embedded in our state, in our economy. I think it's just a question of class here. Um, you've got this financial class that is really dependent on assets that are that are, that are locked into the hydrocarbon sector and these fossil assets. And again, we have to differentiate gas and oil. It's not the same dynamic. In the case of oil, we're sitting on maybe thirty years of income. And uh, you know, if you look at this life cycle of 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 the of the different projects that exist, um, either the ones that use um, that just scrape the sand and just you know transform it or the ones that that use these more complicated processes where we're injecting steam and then we're we're we're, we're pumping out the tar and then in a more liquid form and so these these two basic um ways of extracting um the infrastructures and assets that are in place today um have a life cycle that'll last about 30 years so the canadian government basically wants to guarantee that that income will be there and their their economic argument i don't agree with it I can understand it as, eco- as an economist. The economic argument is basically, well, yeah, the world will need oil for the next 30 years. Of course it will. So why, why not Canadian oil? Why should it be um, Russians or, or the Venezuelans or the Qatari or whatever? Why not Canadian oil? Um, so we're going to be in the race to, 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 to... We'll be the ones that will extract refine and sell the last drop of oil humanity will consume. That's really the way they think. Gas is another story. Gas is still being touted as a, as a bridge fuel. So it's this thing that we're going to need, you know, all through the, the, the next century. So, so we're, whereas we're consolidating our oil sector, we're expanding our gas sector. And, and, and there the logic is really to accompany this, this expansion. So yeah, on the one hand, um, Part of the government and the state says, well, you know, this is going to be horrible. Climate change uh, will it, it imply it. adaptation. It's going to, it's going to, and, and, you know, we have to work hard to meet our targets. And on the other hand, we have, well, oh, we'll find solutions in the future. We can keep on pumping oil and, and, and fracking for gas. Um, and then there's always been these um, unicorn or flying toaster, depends on your imagery, um, solutions, you know, that, that have been around for the last 20 years, um, carbon, carbon capture and storage being the most important, um, which is really uh, like, you know, I was going to say a stupid, yeah, I might as well say a stupid solution because it, it just brings down the, the, the it brings down the, the CO2 intensity of the, um, of what we extract, but when you burn it, it's still a barrel of oil going to burn. I mean, it's going to, it's going to, so it, there, there, the reasoning of the Canadian government um, is we can bring down the CO two or the GHG, the greenhouse gas intensity of our oil, to the level that it is averagely worldwide. So it won't be dirty oil anymore; it'll be normal oil. 
right? That's their idea. So we're going to pump all this public money supporting these projects that are really dubious to be able to have normal oil. That's that's the the strategy that is being. It's not a climate. It's not a net zero strategy. It's not a climate neutral strategy at all. It's just let's normalize our oil. Well, sorry to interrupt you, but I remember a few years ago when the Canadian government was quite upset at the Europeans when the EU uh, characterized or categorized the Canadian oil as essentially dirty because yeah. it's you know from the tar sands, and so they didn't like to be called that. They didn't like their oil to be to be considered dirty, and you know there's this campaign to greenwash it and present it in a different way. Well, you know, and that campaign. Um bore fruit in the sense that we 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 hardly use tar sands anymore. We tend to sell oil sands, um, which is an invention of the industry um, because it is actually tar. It's not oil <laughs> in the sand. <laughs> you get oil at the end of the process, but what you're looking at is tar. And if you've ever seen this stuff, it is it looks like pitch, you know, the, the kind of stuff you use to repair a driveway or that you put on your roof to put, t- to put tiling. It really, yeah, it looks like pitch. But why don't we speak about the language? Because I think the language that's used is is very important, especially when looking at environmental activists, for example. And I know a lot of your work has illustrated how there's this symbolic uh, side of the capitalist structure. I mean, there's the discourse and the symbolism that is essentially characterized by, you know, capitalist relations right. and activists feeling like you know, they have to be um, viewed as legitimate actors and using this this word oil sands as opposed to tar sands is maybe an example of how these power relations affect activist circles. Um, so I, I don't know if you still see this trend among environmental activists or has there been a shift there? Well, I think there's yes and no. Um, I think hardly anybody uses tar sands anymore. I think that's because... We people use oil sands, but I think oil sands have been dirtied anyway. So, you know, as the industry didn't manage to pull it off, they managed to pull off the idea of, okay, let's talk about oil sands, not tar sands anymore. But on the other hand, oil sands are seen negatively. Now I would say the new the new um vocabulary that is being that is emerging um in business circles that it's being or or even you know by the Trudeau government, um is a lot about net zero. Um carbon neutral, um, these expressions are very ambiguous because on the one hand, um, net zero, well, it's, it's, it's the idea of a, of an addition, right? So, so you can subtract what you added in. So then the technologies of, of subtraction are, um, are presented as existing as to scale and as efficient. And they are not, they're not, they, 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 they exist as prototypes, the ones that are uh, working today um, um, are, are very inefficient. Um, you know, we were promised 90% capture and we're at 60% at the best in tar sands um, for this carbon capture and storage. And and most of the stuff is being used to pump more oil out anyways. You know, it's not carbon capture and storage, it's carbon capture use and storage. So we're actually using the CO2 um, as a way to frack um, or to push oil out. So, so... The net zero is kind of a can be a trap um, because then you're brought into a conversation where, oh, we can continue extracting as long as we compensate. Um, so that's one of the, um, I'd say, the new ways in which we're being caught up in these in these debates. Another one is um, an, another emerging, I would say, linguistic frontier or linguistic struggle or narrative struggles around growth. Um, if you look at the way the Canadian government presents continuously it's um different um climate uh policies it's always this idea of um net zero or carbon neutrality or decarbonification or um but then they always add the expression clean growth clean growth mechanism or growth for the middle class or growth that gives prosperity to the middle class these words are always there these are key words growth prosperity and middle class are really and, and there you see this ideological construct which is very strong which ties together middle class prosper, prosperity and um and and economic growth and um this is becoming interesting because um 
the climate science that is being um, presented in, in, let's say, in the, in the last um, IPCC report, the sixth assessment of by the IPCC, um, is starting to debate growth and starting to well, the, the, starting to voices are being more and more heard from natural scientists and from some heterodox economists saying that growth is just not something that is possible if you want to attain our goals both for climate and for biodiversity. So I think this is going to be a new train of struggle um, where, yeah, the word growth itself is going to be politicized. Right. And I think you also speak about degrowth as a, a concept and also, you know, as a movement to to show that in order to live on this planet, if if you're sort of pushing these planetary boundaries or these these limits of ecology, then, you know, the economy isn't sustainable. So growth for growth's sake isn't, as we've seen over the past uh, few decades, is really not something that we should be pursuing. Yeah, maybe yeah. That's the, Sorry, maybe that's a good segue into your book, actually. Um, the book that you've yeah. just published, A Social Ecology of Capital, which is really a fantastic read. And one thing you do, well, you do many things in the book, but one thing you do is you speak about um, capitalist metabolism, essentially. So you, you speak about you know two different forms of societies, namely, which fall under this capitalist uh, metabolic structure, which would be agrarian societies, and then fossil fuel industrialized societies, which is the, the current uh, moment we're living in right now. Um, maybe you can explain that concept of uh, metabolism, because if, if people are familiar with Marx, I mean, he does speak about uh, metabolism in terms of labor and, and you know, uh, means of production with regards to labor. But I think the way you use it is slightly different. Um, so maybe we can speak about that and I'll actually just read one part from yeah. your book because I think it's it's really fascinating. So in your introduction, you speak about the materiality of capitalist metabolism appears in one of three guises: social metabolism as flows of energy and materials passing through societies or throughput, social metabolism as an accumulation of material stocks, and social metabolism as a colonization of ecosystems by human activity. So I think that kind of si sums up essentially what social metabolism metabolism is. But please elaborate on it because it's a, a very fascinating concept. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a concept that is that is um, used by Marx uh, in in Capital. We can get back to that in a few seconds. But um, it's a concept that reemerged in the nineties. Um, um, was um, it emerged in in debates and discussions among ecological economists um, that were trying to move away from a, an understanding and representation of the economy uniquely through monetary flows. Um, they wanted to have a representation or, or monetary assets, they monetized assets. They wanted to have a representation of the materiality of the economy. And there was a really important paper published by um, colleagues in Vienna, and, and my debt to them is really huge, and I talk about it in the book. Marina Fischer-Kowalski and Helmut Heber published this paper in, in the 90s um, called Tons, Jewels, and Money, saying, you know, we can look at the economy through the lens of money, but we could also, and, and that gives us GDP, but we could also look at the tons of matter that are going through, or we could look at the jewels, which are which are energy units that, that we need to expand to. And that's really where the concept of metabolism was recast um, as a way to look at the material um, um, frame or the material structure of the economy and to have a language that could represent that materiality in and of itself, to move away from the, necess the necessity to always translate into monetary terms this material basis. So but metabolism is, is, is a concept pretty easy to understand. It's, it's the idea that, you know, a society like a living entity must extract, absorb, transform, and reject um, elements from its environment, basically. And, and in doing so, this is an entropic process where we take in energy, we take in um, complex matter, and we reject more simple, degraded forms, but they can be useful, you know, in an ecological cycle. One's, um, um, what one, um, rejects is another's um, food often in these, in these trophic cycles. 
So this idea of metabolism was then um, brought up to level um, um, to analyze societies, basically saying, well, a society does this. A society um, must harvest or extract, and it must um, it, 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 it then transforms, and it's a way of looking at the economy. And what it does, and I think that's where it's powerful, is that the power of metabolism is to move us away from a dematerialized representation of the economy, which is really the one that was dominant throughout the whole cycle of political economy, um, bringing down the economy to two basic relations, production and consumption. And what social metabolism does, it says, actually, no, a, an economy rests on four structures or four relations, which are um, extraction. To, to produce, you have to extract in a material world. If you're in a non-material world, could exist in our imaginations, we wouldn't have to abstract, extract anything. But in the real world, we have to extract to produce. So extraction, um, production, consumption, and then when we consume, um, um, eventually something that is used will be used up. Um, and then it will be dissipated or wasted. You know, And we have talked about dissipation as the technical term. Um, and, and the notion of used up is important because um, it's a social um, notion. It's not a biophysical notion. Um, the decision that something is used up um, has often nothing to do with its physical um, use. It has something, it has mostly to do with the social decision that it's not useful anymore for a bunch of reasons, which can be you know, cultural, which can be economic, which can be capitalistic in nature. So we have this four-tier economy um, and the and that's the metabolic structure of an economy. And then you can say, well, okay, what's the backbone on which a society thrives? Um, and social ecologists have, have um, and environmental historians have um, divided societies um, through different metabolic regimes. And the two that are relevant for our discussion that you highlighted are the agrarian and are the industrial fossil. And in the book, I do spend a lot of time delving into the, you know, the implications of these two regimes. So what is an agrarian regime? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's where the backbone of, 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 of the existence, the material existence of societies through agriculture. And what is agriculture? It's putting plants to work. It's basically transforming through colonization, um, uh, an ecosystem, um, transforming it and, and, and maximizing its capacity to capture solar energy and to store it in a form that is useful or that is desired because it's not often a question of use. Use, it can be a question of desire, of social desire, that is desired and useful um, or necessary to power relations um, in a given society. Necessary to power relations because, and this is James Scott's argument in, in Against the Green, because um, in certain societies, we could say that, that, that the decision to move towards grain instead of to staying in other forms of agricultural relations was tied to the, the to, to power structures that were being built up, hierarchies around urban environments. Anyways, the agrarian regime, its specificity is that it's through ecological relations that human societies thrive and reproduce themselves. Um, and ecological productivity capacity to transform solar energy through photosynthesis into forms into biomass basically um is the limit um um is kind of the ceiling in which we are we are we our societies de will develop and thrive and and so so what we call technically net primary production which is the capacity of plants to take solar energy and make biomass is basically what will limit the development of a society and it's inside those limits that societies will will thrive um when we and this has a bunch of implications that have been studied by a bunch of historians and political economists you know andreas malm explored this um and, and others um um and and you know jason moore has explored the this you know how do you how do you temporarily overcome that barrier well you can do it by setting up slave-based plantations that's one way to, to 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 go around the problem another way is to is to pillage new environments or pillage societies you know or set up tributary relations or so but it's always inside this ecological productivity 
fossil societies are, are radically are radically different. Um, whereas in an agrar agrarian society, you must produce the surplus that you will then live off. An industrial fossil society finds the surplus under its feet. It's, it's the energy stored up in coal and oil and gas that is there. And that society's um, mode of, 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 of production and of extraction is how can you um, absorb this massive surplus of energy and put it to work? And, and, and in doing so, um, accumulate capital and, and, and make profit. And, and I, and that for me is, is a very, and then it also leads to a new representation of the surplus, um, which isn't as in agrarian societies, the surplus appears as grain. It appears as the muscle power that can be harnessed and harvested or coerced into, into work. And this muscle power can be human or it can be um, animal. And there's a lot of animals that work in agrarian societies. It's something we've forgotten. Half the biomass that we produce in agrarian societies goes to feeding animals that work for us. Um, in a, in a, in a big fossil society, um, the, 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 the absorbing this, this surplus is, is goes by, by new rules. You, 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 um, represent symbolically the surplus as energy, as this abstract capacity to work that then puts to work human bodies. So it's a very different, um, and this capacity, abstract capacity to work, um, and I'm thinking of Kara Daggett's work on, on the birth of energy, her beautiful book on the birth of energy. Um, so this abstract capacity, to, 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 which is basically what physics thinks about back in the 18th and 19th century, um, means that the source of surplus that you're extracting can become many things. It can become heat. It can become mechanical work. It can become chemical work. Um, it can become kinetic energy. So, so it's much more plastic. Um, it's like abstract labor, basically. So there's an, uh, one could say if one would take a, a, an expression from Weber, there's an elective affinity between fossil fuels and capital because of its plus, plasticity, the fact that it's plastic. So that's one of the, the important ideas that, that I don't invent. I mean, that, that's out there that's been discussed by other scholars in the past um, 20 years, but that I try to bring together in a synthesis that's original. And it also speaks to the way we will, if we remain in a capitalist um, system, that we can understand transition. We're caught up in this, this idea that out there somewhere, there's abstract energy that can be harnessed and appropriated through private property relations and that can be articulated to um, um, assets that will generate um, um, income in the form of profits. So accumulation. So this idea that that there is a stock of, of energy out there somewhere that um, is a basis for a new cycle of accumulation. And we're desperately searching for it. And we're trying to find it in hydrogen. We're trying to find it in wind. We're trying to find it in solar energy. But the, we're trying to find it with this symbolic and ideological framework and also with the social property relations of capital, which depends on this idea that came out of coal, oil, and gas, but mostly coal, this imaginary that was built out of coal, which is this idea of um, it's out there. It can be put to work in various forms. It's plastic. It's appropriable. We can appropriate it. We have to move people away. We have to, you know, of course we can violate. We have to violate, expropriate people to get to it. But it's it, it it can be somehow captured by property relations, and that's the framework in which we're looking at transition today because it's a capitalist transition. So that's one of the things the book tries to do. It tries to share this language of social metabolism with with, and it tries to bring together this language of social metabolism with what, how we can understand a capitalist economy, an advanced capitalist economy based on large corporations that overproduce so that 
and depend on overconsumption of what is overproduced. Basically, the um, what the book tries to do. Well, it does a really good job in in doing so, and I think another aspect that it speaks about is how how it relies so much on monopoly capitalism and, and you know, the consolidation of monopolistic industries. Um, yeah. I, you know, we see that in the, in the oil and gas sector, but can you maybe speak about other sectors? Yeah, that's where it came from, actually. You know, and, I, you know, I, I've been discussing the book, book a bit in various circles and in certain Marxist circles, people are like, oh, that's such an old, you know, theory, monopoly capital. You know, it's like, Back in the 60s, why are you using that? You know, there's much sexier theories today about, you know, cognitive capital and about um, um, the, you know, the tendency of the rate to fall. And, and, and yeah, but what about, you know, all this um, globalization implies a lot of competition and, you know, whatever. So, yeah, right. You know, at, uh, that I do acknowledge that there are other ways of looking at capital. But when you're working in the extractive sector, when you're looking at extractive industries, I mean, these are, it's a monopolistic sector. There's no way, there's no way around explaining, you know, you can't use other theories to explain what's going on. It's really a monopolistic sector. Yeah, and it would also potentially explain inflation, right? And explain it why does, yeah. prices you know, are so high in certain yeah. sectors. You know, and, and, and this is also when you're working in the real world of, you know, of prices and, 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 of, and of materials and not in the, I would say, more abstract world of value and, 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 and these more sophisticated theories of value. But, you know, I tend to work in the real, in a more empirical world. So if you look at Glencore, for example, um, Glencore extracts around 9% of the world's copper, but it ships, transports, and sells 18% of the world's copper. Um, and all the metals, take any metal that you want, except lithium. Lithium is, a, is, is a, because it's an emerging material. It's not consolidated yet, but take any other, and even that, it's changing quickly, but all the other metals, you know, nickel, iron, uh, aluminum, bauxite, whatever. You've got four or five big, huge global corporations that control the market. Um, same thing with, with wood, um, cement. You've got three big players that control the world in production of cement, and the rest is just, you know, marginal. China does mess up the picture because China has these state-led corporations that are huge. Um, so you put them in. You've got one in China, so you end up with four monopolists. So, and then if you look at the waste sector, same thing. In the waste sector, you've got four or five major corporations that control waste flows globally. So if you look at the materiality of our economy, you're looking at a small number of huge corporations that are that have worldwide reach and that have sunk their capital into assets that are tied to the extraction and waste of these materials that are that, that make our world you know and be it oil be it cement be it um, um wood be it um um uh, oil be it uh, you know whatever whatever and oil i'm not thinking palm oil not only like or soybeans corn um these when you study these these material flows yeah, if you're looking, you know, who's going to develop the next app that's going to revolutionize the way we use our phones, then you have competition and you've got these, you know, venture capitalists and you've got this very dynamic system of, of heightened competition. But when you look at the world of the materials on which, out of which our phones are made, you've got four or five big players. That's it. Also, historically, if you look at this transition, which you speak about between, you know, going or moving from an agrarian society to an, a fossil fuel industrialized society, you speak about two different things. One being, you know, using coal to essentially get more coal, coal as being a, 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 you know, characterizing or decisive feature, but also the proliferation of means of transport and being able to ship different goods, grain or, or sand or whatever it might be in order to to industrialize, and I, I'm pretty sure that even even then there were maybe only just a few um, companies involved. So I think this idea of, of monopoly monopoly capitalism and monopolies forming in specific sectors has always been historically relevant, at least in, in the past few centuries. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's two phases to this, which are interesting, and and the, and the first phase I didn't really work on it in the book. And I, I'd say that Jason Moore is more the appropriate person to, to discuss that. Um, but the first phase would be 
inside the, the huge commercial empires that we saw um, when the colonial system was being put in place by European capitalist powers, where you had these colonial companies. And, you know, Canada is basically the fruit of that effort um, and that process. Um, so you have these colonial monopolies that are set up and that, and they control the circulation of what you can extract in an agrarian setting through either growing it or, or, or pillaging it. <laughs> you know, it's the two basic means, you know, you either force people to grow it and then you can grow it through settler colonialism, which is what happened in Canada, or you can grow it through a slave-based system, which is what they did in the Caribbean and in the Southern U.S. And then the people, and then the commercial interests that are putting into circulation these this matter, which is essential to capitalism back then, wood, um, um, fiber, cotton, whatever, uh, sugar. Um, yeah, these are monopolists. Um, but they're very, um, yeah, there's a second wave of monopoly, um, monopolization. And that's the one that I work with more, which is um, tied to the corporate form. The corporation as we know it today it emerges at the end of the 19th century. And there's two basic areas which are strategic to the emergence of the modern corporation. Railroads. You go from a mess of thousands of small railroad companies that are, you know, competing against one one um, against the other to, to um, a consolidation process of, of a small number of, of corporate... And the corporate form and corporate law emerges out of this context. Then you have the same um, legal, political, and economic process continues in the steel industry, which is tied to coal, which is tied, and, and then into the oil sector. You, you know, uh, standard oil is, is, we owe corporate, you know, corporate laws that exist today is tied to, to standard oil. And to break up standard oil into, into, into smaller, uh, you know, le le less, um, continental entities so so standard oil is basically the i would say brings the process of the creation of the corporate form to its most um, advanced you know it kind of matures the process that emerges out of out of the, of the railroad sector so the transition towards a fossil industrial economy at least if we take north american as, as an example is intimately tied to the institutional transformations that bring about the modern corporation so the, the two are tied together. I don't think I make that point enough in the book. Actually, I realized that it's kind of a story that I tell when I teach courses and I should maybe eventually write it up better, but that's really an important aspect. Well, we could probably do a whole episode just on that historical aspect, but I know you have to go. So just one last very short question, which I think is important. How do you see your concept or, or this concept as social, you know, uh, of the social ecology of capital contributing to an emancipatory project of redistribution of, of wealth, of trying to undermine or dismantle these capitalist uh, relations? Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'd say two things to, to answer that question. The first thing is um, the book um, tries to propose a language, um, a new language or a language that's out there. I mean, I don't want to invent the words. The words are there, but synthesize. So so to translate this language, bring it together and, and, and a language useful to our struggles against, um, um, fossil metabolism, but also for, um, and this language is, is, you know, about materiality, which is a language that is notably absent. I think in a lot of our critical theories, um, today. So I think it tries to, um, and, and I'll, I'll come back to that point in a second, but, but, but I think the book also at, on that issue kind of doesn't fail, but doesn't live up to, because I mean, the book is, is very scholarly. I mean, it's, it's, it's dense, it's short and dense. It's not something that you can. And, and so I am writing a book in French um, that is more geared toward the activists actually, because my struggles in Quebec are with the month. I, I work with Francophones. So I'm, I'm writing a, a movement based version of this book, which eventually could be retranslated into English, I guess, but um, which, um, because I think this book is not it's it's not a book that I think an activist can just grab and and read through in a weekend. It's it's very it, it, yeah, it's kind of dense. A, a friend of mine dense. says it's cheesecake. Yeah. <laughs> so get but what does it do? And and that's the last chapter. You know, um, I have the book here actually. Um, 
and the last chapter is, you know, it's, the title is, is, um, 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 sorry, emancipation amid the ruins of fossil capital. That's what the, and, and I think that's important. This idea of ruins, um, we, the material, the materiality of our society will not disappear the day after the revolution. Um, and I don't see our current social transformation as being one of a, of, of a quick revolution, you know, in which all, everything changes at once. I think it's going to be a, a more protracted process of long and agonistic change in a, in a context of having to adapt to a world that is going to be more and more hostile um, because of the, um, of climate change. And, and, and in that long process, we will generate ruins. Um, and we will have to acknowledge that maybe a lot of the materiality that we even have gotten used to and that appreciate, like the technology that is supporting our discussion today, might become part of these ruins. That there'll so, so and and I think that's where social ecology and social metabolism is is useful. It's 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 a it's kind of like there's there's no easy way out of this type of conclusion. Um, that you know, socialism is not just the Soviets' so radical workplace democracy and electricity. It's not. It's going to be much more complicated, and it's also, I think, uh, a, a criticism and an antidote to the kind of easy solutions proposed by by the people around more. I would say the Green New Deal approach, which are basically saying, you know, just convert the electricity, convert the grid to renewable energy, and everything's going to be fine. It's going to be. I mean, the material change is very deep, and and it can also, I think, this vocabulary be used um, as a planning instrument. I think that if we do democratically want to change the metabolism of our society, if we do want to learn to live within limits, that we will discover and set for ourselves, because you know, nature will not give us limits. Nature will just change. There are no limits out there in nature. That's 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 not the way it works. What works is that we will discover the limits that we have to impose to ourselves because otherwise we will create natures in which we will not be able to exist, but maybe other social form, other life forms, sorry, will be able to exist. So if you don't want to end up in, in a world in which we cannot exist, then we have to set limits to our activities. And social metabolism gives us the tools to debate, I think, these, the, these limits, to see the materiality of our society. And in the book, I propose... I propose some tools, but I think there's so much more out there. But I propose mostly a perspective. We have to look at the materia materiality and we have to look at it in a non um yeah, we have to look at it in the in a in a in a lucid manner. Um and this lucidity comes through, you know, this very dry and and I would say gray vocabulary of you know, material stocks and flows that if you have built up a city out of concrete that is very dense um, with um, buildings that are 40, 50 stories high, then you need a lot of energy to keep that thing going. You've locked in flows. Just no other way around it. If you move away from that towards something that is different, that implies less density, that um, that is that has got more nature in it, um, then you, you might need less of these flows, but you might need more human labor. And then, you know, we're faced with choices. We've moved away from, from, from human labor directly engaging with nature in ecological relations. We've built up our society and our notions of progress around human labor interacting with the earth through geological relations, extracting stuff and building it up. And using the stuff we extract to labor less, us, the privileged, even though at, at the three quarters of humanity is laboring a lot for, so that we can labor less. And even in, and this three quarters implies people in our own societies, um, waste workers or people that are working in the fields to, to generate the food that we eat. But I think that um, it one of the, I, I would say, I'll, important messages of social ecology of capital is that we have to reconsider this notion of progress, moving from the ecological to the, to the geological and moving back into ecological relations with nature, with what we call nature in our societies. 
other societies of other words, nature is, is really modern and, and Western, but that's what we have as a word. So let's use it. Um, so these ecological relations, um, um, will imply new imaginaries of, 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 of activities and, and there are not, and maybe end it with that. That's something that I, that I argue in the book. I think there we have a lot to, to learn and draw from feminist work on reproductive, um, activities and reproductivity as a concept um, and, the, and the care that goes into that and the, the way we understand labor in that context, in a reproductive context, which is very different from labor understood um, um, as an extractive. Uh, I think there, and you know, I touch on this in the introduction, I use it a bit in certain chapters, but I think, you know, I, I think there we have to read you know, feminist economists and feminist theorists that can really help us move into this new way of understanding our metabolism as we move into more ecological relations again. Right. And th that approach would also problematize ideas of, you know, measuring economic growth in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, because that doesn't really it's take into irrelevant. account reproductive labor and the value yeah. of child care and, and care work and that sort of thing. So that's all missing. Yeah. Basically, what the GDP does is it calculates what we cut out of our social activities and the, and it basically it it calculates the frontier or the border that we put between productive and reproductive, and and it calculates what we devalue as non uh, as non economic, which which is all the care. And and it says, okay, once we've cut all that out, we take a cookie cutter, hook, you know, and 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 okay, there's the cookie, that's value, and the rest just doesn't exist. That's what GDP does. It's horrible. It's a horrible metric. I use it as the metric to understand the degree of commercialization of a society, the degree of cap, you know, the degree of penetration of, of, of capital in our social relations is brilliantly measured by GDP. That's what it's good for. Well, perhaps next time we could speak about other terms to use as opposed to GDP, and also speak about this, you know, this this feminist approach that's missing widely in the discourse, and and also how uh, social metabolism and and ecologies or economies of extraction are heavily built on hierarchies of gendered hierarchies, racialized hierarchies. So maybe another time we could speak about that as well. Yeah, and well. bring other voices too, because a lot of voices could speak to these questions a lot more than than me, but I could also, yeah, it's something that really that interests me and I think is highly important. Yeah. So, and then maybe one last word. So, you know, this brings us to, and I conclude also with this in the book, to degrowth. And degrowth, not as a, as a slogan or as a, as an end in, of itself, but as the idea that we have to move out of the growth paradigm to think emancipation. We have to think emancipation beyond growth. I think that's really the, what I try to end up end with. Well, that's a great way to end emancipation beyond growth. And yeah. thank you so much, uh, Professor Pinot, for joining the analysis. It was really great to have you on and to speak about these, lead, I think, dense issues, but incredibly relevant to our time. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for watching the analysis.news. If you enjoyed this content on social ecology of capital, please do go to our website, theanalysis.news, and consider donating to the show. You can also get on our mailing list to ensure that you're notified every time a new episode drops. And also go to our YouTube channel, the analysis-news, like the channel, and subscribe, and hit the bell. That way you're notified next time there's a new episode. See you again. Take care.